This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Orly Lobel, who is a professor of law at the University of San Diego, who also heads up their center for Employment law, is that correct? Employment and labor policy. That's right. An expert in employment law and also law and economics specialist who's written three books. Most recent book is called The Quality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future. You also wrote before that this book, You Don't Own Me. I love this book, which is really all about the Mattel versus Bratz case which is, it's intellectual property, but it's really employment law. And then also talent wants to be free. Welcome, Orly. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, you actually referenced some of your earlier works in the new book, right? Where you mentioned that talent wants to be free. You also mentioned that data wants to be free. And we're living in a time where obviously machine learning is having a massive impact on pretty much every aspect of what we do in life and business and law. And there are quite a few people who are concerned, right? In particular, there's a lot of people that are concerned about algorithmic bias and how algorithms can accentuate and exacerbate inequality of opportunity, inequality of outcome and application of the law. And you kind of weighed into this discussion as, I guess what we might call a techno optimist. Is that a fair description? I mean, you have a very well-reasoned set of arguments saying that, hey, you know, yes, there are issues, there are problems, but that artificial intelligence is something that we're going to be able to leverage to advance all of these goals, in particular, the goal of equality and even more narrowly, gender equality. That's absolutely a fair description. Um, It's funny to me to be called a contrarian and an optimist in 2023 for saying that we need to harness technology and digital data and connectivity to tackle the huge wicked problems that we face as a society. But that is the goal and the motivation behind the book to get more balanced about how we talk about technology, how we think about technology, what do we fear and what do we actually know and where are the potential and risks. So that was what I set out to do. Well, maybe we can start. I mean, look, you're, you're an employment law specialist, and a big part of employment law is about discrimination. And, you know, this term discrimination has a bit of a, a bad rap. You know, it's kind of a pejorative in the English language. But discrimination is what we do all the time. I mean, you know, machine learning algorithms, classifiers, they are discriminators, right? And we used to call it discriminant analysis. I remember back in the old days when you were trying to figure out, like, who should get a loan or not, right? You know, you'd use some kind of logistic regression and then you'd come up with a boundary line and, you know, folks on this side get the loan and folks on that side don't get the line. And so, you know, you're going to be doing discrimination no matter what. So the thing is, how do we distinguish between the kind of discrimination that is fair and the discrimination that is not fair? And the Becker story is that if everyone acts in their own self-interest, then the discrimination will always makes sense, right? If the objective function is to maximize profits, then any kind of discrimination, which is rooted in ignorance or rooted in 
faulty characterizations of groups, the companies have an interest in uncovering the discrepancies between how they're doing things and how they could. And if that were true, then why would we need to have legal protections? I'm just getting to the heart of, you know, what starts off your book. Right. So kind of really getting back to the basics of is there market discrimination? Why do we need policy to eradicate it? And the Becker story, you know, I actually go back to it. And I think in each of my books, because one of the things that is very important to me is to think, well, two things. One is, are we in competitive market? That's where the Becker story holds, where people can actually discover their true value if there is mobility, if there is recruitment and retention and there's competition over the best skills and the best experiences. That's one condition. And the other is, of course, rationality. So that's something that I, as a behavioral um, line policy researcher, I think about a lot. And throughout like two decades of my career, I've been teaching, researching, and also serving as an expert witness in cases on employment discrimination. I have one right now and, you know, where I'm looking at harassment and hostile work environment. And we humans don't always line up with the orthodox idea of how market actors will act for their best interest. And even more than that, we're actually very much unaware oftentimes why we're making decisions. And that's something that, again, in my research, I've shown I have a collaborator, Yuval Feldman, who he and I have in a series of studies, we've looked at like why people decide to report wrongdoing at a company and what incentivized their performance and their behavior. And we always see, I mean, it's not just us that discover this, but, you know, I think it's very strong in the evidence. There's a big gap between how we think we make decisions, what influences us and what really goes in. So linking that to this question of technology, for me, one of the first things that I want to always kind of respond when people are very afraid of algorithms and algorithmic decision making, and they say it's a black box. I say, well, you know, our tiny little algorithms that are called brains are also black boxes. And it's very hard to decipher, even when you're going through like a long court case when you're trying to see the motivation of an executive of why they promoted somebody and not somebody else, why they paid them more and paid women and minorities less. Very, very difficult to really kind of put your finger on all the factors that went into our human decision making. So I very much want to always keep kind of that comparative lens saying there's no problems deciphering or understanding the automated processes, but what is easier to understand, easier to correct, and what is comparatively outperforming the other, the status quo or our newer capabilities? Yeah, I've always been puzzled by people when they point to deficiencies in, say, algorithmic decision-making. I mean, they're comparing it against some kind of benchmark of perfection rather than the benchmark of the human decision-making that it's replacing. And certainly when it comes to using fine-grained algorithms that involve multiple variables. I mean, humans typically will default to the crudest of categorical distinctions, right? I had a um, couple friends who started a recruiting company, one of the earliest of the algorithmic recruiting companies, and later got acquired. But what I found fascinating about it, and I've used it as an example in a lot of my classes, is that when they would interview all of these HR managers and say, you know, what do you think makes for a valuable employee? You know, and they got all sorts of hypotheses, they got all sorts of rules that they were using. And these were the explicit ones. They weren't necessarily the ones that they were applying in practice. And then when they, you know, they looked at the data, they found that there, there wasn't a really strong relationship between the crude categories that they were using and, you know, what turned out to be good predictors. So, I mean, it, it seems like the algorithms will have a tendency to break down or supersede the crude categories that humans use, assuming we have the right kind of objective function, right? Is the main problem like specifying what the objective function is, like you wanna maximize productivity or you wanna maximize, rather than just trying to predict what the humans would do. I think a lot of the recruiting algorithms just try to predict what the humans would do and then they just replicate what the humans do. Right, exactly. So what I'm very frustrated with, specifically with this question of algorithmic hiring, but you see this, these examples, 
everywhere. And we can talk about in the book, I have chapter about health and about facial recognition and law enforcement and education and financial decision, you know, like the whole spectrum. What I see happening in our public conversations, and this is even true in the scholarly literature, that the same stories of the first shot attempt to do algorithmic decision making in whatever field, and there was a failure, those stories are rehashed, retold, and there's kind of not that stopping and saying, like, what is happening actually right now? So exactly like you described, you know, there are better ways and there are worse ways to ask an algorithm to do something. It's this human design. And the worst ways is to say, just do what was always done. And yes, of course, that will replicate past biases. So the story that's always told in the media. And again, I like part of my research was just like kind of flag that it's like the beginning of every algorithms are biased article that you will see in the literature is Amazon tried to do a hiring algorithm and it just directed it to look at what was happening in the past and you got just white men, you know, whatever lacrosse players named Jared. But what's not told in that story is that Amazon could actually check that unlike with humans who are exactly what you described, we're very much overly optimistic about our rationality to especially in this field of like hiring and doing interviews. There's lots of research about like how people, you know, within 20 seconds make decisions about people that they're interviewing and we're just really bad at We don't know what influenced us that same day. But with an algorithm, you can do audits. You can constantly check for the outcomes of whether there is a skewed, disproportionate demographic that's being excluded or overly included. And you can also ask the algorithm to be more exploratory. So kind of the computer scientists differentiate between exploitation algorithms that look at the past, like just replicating what had been done versus exploration algorithms where you tell them, look for undervalued talent, look for like these characteristics that might be good for performance. And you asked, you know, should we just tell them to find the best people? I mean, it's much more complicated than that. You can have actually, I think the gold standard is becoming in these companies that are doing the work. And the other thing that I should say, and I am sure you would agree with me on this, that Like the train has left the station. I don't like that we have these conversations of should we automate? Should we ban automation? Fortune 500 companies, the vast majority have automated these processes. So the question is in the policy and kind of the public debate should be how to do it, not whether to do it. But the gold standard is becoming that you don't have one algorithm. You have like a dual algorithms that are working together. One is sorting. One is doing that kind of discrimination work that's not the tainted discrimination that that's biased that you talked about, but just like the idea of finding patterns and and making decisions. And then the other one constantly checks like a 24-7 every day on whether we can improve, whether we're seeing a good distribution from the kind of identities that we care about, that the law has already signaled that we need gender equality and racial equality and more accessibility, uh, you know, inclusion of people with different abilities. So you can do that. You can have these designs of kind of the constant auditing that also comes with automation. Well, I mean, is, is employment different? In my data science class, I like to analogize between kind of marketing products and services to consumers and marketing jobs to prospective employees, right? And I tend to think of the job as consumer good, you're, except you're paying with your labor rather than paying with your cash. If we're advertising a product, right, let's say we're advertising a dress, we certainly would not want to ignore gender identification in our marketing campaign, right? Not only because we're not going to have any click through if we send these dress ads to people who identify as male, but we're also going to piss off the males who have to then scroll through all of these irrelevant ads. Obviously, it would be better to have a predictor that says interest in buying dresses But if we don't have that, then using like a gender proxy seems like a fairly inoffensive way to maximize the mutual benefit there. Is it different with jobs where if we know, hey, if I advertise this, say, nursing position to people who identify as females, I'm going to get a much higher click-through rate. I'm going to get a much higher conversion rate. I'm going to get more engagement. Obviously, it'd be better to have like a interest in profession of nursing, you know, predictor. But if it works, why would that be problematic? 
No, these are really important questions. I'm happy you're asking that in, in that way. Three things. First of all, the labor market should be much more understood as a consumer market. And we talked before the show about Lena Khan and what's happening at the FTC. One of the things that I've been from my earlier book saying we need to understand the talent market as a market and when there are collusions, whether it's restrictions on competition, it's very much the purview of antitrust and the FTC to go after those kinds of contracts and we need a competitive market. So that's one thing to just say, like even with the gig economy, when you think about multi-sided networks on like online platforms, we should understand the service providers, not just the buyers as consumers as well, and kind of have all those protections in place. So we should analyze it similarly. But more important to your question, two things. One is that in general, I actually very much subscribe to more information is better on all fronts. So right now we have unprecedented capabilities to know more about all of us, about us, about our preferences, our genetic, our well-being, our health, our environment, all the factors. And I think that we've designed our laws in ways that are counterproductive in kind of restricting the inputs into decision making rather than checking on the outputs. So in kind of your example, it would be like, don't ask anything about gender, about race, about your health issues. Just kind of don't ask, don't tell and just don't give the algorithm that information because that's unlawful because we want to be completely blind. But that's exactly those kind of questions that are also before the Supreme Court also on the education front right now. You know, if, if we actually want to create more equality, more substantive distributive justice equality that takes into account the inequities that we come with, we actually need all the inputs and then check on like, what are the barriers? Are we getting enough minorities coming through? And maybe, you know, we should actually tell the algorithm that it was more difficult from a specific background to apply for this job. And so they should get like points for that. Of course, in the United States, it's like, oh, are you talking about affirmative action? That sounds illegal. Well, this is a moment where we should rethink those laws. We should think that we have these opportunities to be much more precise about all the barriers and all the kind of differences that we come with and think about it as an opportunity to equalize on that front. So all of that is really, I think, a moment where we should shift the focus. But on the question of the more specific one where you say, shouldn't we as a market, like, isn't it just more efficient to advertise jobs to that, you know, pool of people that is more likely up to apply? That's where I am. Like, I'm not with you anymore. I think, no, I think not just because it's unlawful to advertise in kind of that disparate way under our current laws, but also because we do want to expand. I mean, there's there are many reasons why markets are segregated, why there are pink collar jobs and white collar jobs or blue collar jobs, why we see kind of these paths that women take and industries that are less inclusive. So I think it's better to actually have this requirement to cast the net much more broadly. I think, again, we can use machine learning for that. I give in the book these examples of these great ways where even the ways that we advertise a job and opening, things that we would never think about, like whether you put bullet points or use different fonts or like use certain terms. It turns out that certain terms are a turnoff in certain formatting for certain cultures or minority or women, for example, the same exact ad for the same job. But if it uses some military jargon, you're going to get less women applicants. And that's thing, something that like a human drafting that job ad would never think about. But we can actually ask our machines to do that like nitty gritty work and tell us, look, we can increase the pool, the under applying pool. We can also just like these days employ, I mean, this is another thing about digital technology that we can employ people all around the world. We can think about COVID and remote work, how really digital technology has allowed us to work together, to be connected, to expand markets to places that did not have the opportunity of having these great resources of jobs. So all of that to say yes and no, we want more information, but we also want to make sure that with our 
technology, we're expanding the pool and not narrowing it and not just, again, replicating like your kind of example of, oh, let's just advertise to the ones that we know are more likely that I think is discrimination, the wrong kind of discrimination. <laughs> yeah. And you reference a lot of these startups and companies like Textio is one that, that I'm familiar with that you referenced. They've emerged to kind of help people use machine learning to identify these flaws in how they're going about recruiting and, and doing other activities. And you talk about when does it make sense to leave in and when does it make sense to take out the kind of inputs around, say, gender and race. And one of the advantages of using an algorithm to do decision making is that you can just go in and surgically snip out these features. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of remnants because there's so many correlations that you're not going to necessarily change the outputs of the algorithm all that much, but at least you can do it in a way that you can't do it with individuals. I mean, I always love it when you're in court and there's some evidence that slips into the trial and then the judge says, now just ignore that. <laughs> right, right. And now that's the one evidence, piece of evidence that everybody's focused on. <laughs> right. But when does it make sense to remove it and when does it make sense to leave it in? I was thinking about, this is about 25 years ago or so, my girlfriend was smacked in the face by a horse's skull, right? She was out riding horses and the horse hit her and she got like a black eye and a busted nose or something. And I remember taking her down to the university hospital. And of course they pulled her aside and said, hey, what's going on here, right? For a private conversation without me in the room. And I was taken aback a bit and I realized that if it was me that came in with the broken nose, then they would not have had this private conversation. And in a sense that that makes sense, right? Because the vast majority of domestic abuse is male on female. And so why wouldn't we want to treat those circumstances differently? So under, under what circumstances does it make sense? And you mentioned actually the compass, right? The compass recidivism predictor algorithm and how the debate over whether you should include gender in that algorithm. These are hard normative questions that need to be answered in a democratic way and democratic society. I talk a lot in the book and different examples of about how the underlying values that we have that we're trying to achieve when we automate, it's not really new that we're trying to achieve a lot of different goals. And sometimes there are real hard tensions between them. So we want equality and we want freedom and we want free speech. We want privacy. We want well-being, but we want distributive justice. You know, we want scale, but also like individualized care. So we need to recognize that there's going to be some tensions there. And I think that certainly there are places where removing information will actually be harmful to exactly the goals and the more vulnerable communities that we're trying to protect. So that's actually a really important point that I make in the book and that goes against a lot of the privacy scholars out there that are kind of dominating tech policy these days. So at the EU level, there's this term that is now coming into the federal policy you know, and legislation that's before Congress, which is data minimization. This idea that the default needs to be that we need to collect as little as possible and use the data that we collect like a very narrow channel of like predefined use because that will protect our privacy. And the assumption, also kind of the next step in this fallacy analysis that's really flawed, is that when we collect more information, we're actually going to be harming the more vulnerable. It's not just that we're all going to have our privacy, like surveillance capitalism, you know, that scary idea that you know more and that's harmful to all of us. But it's also specifically going to be used by the powerful against the powerless. And I say that sometimes that may be true, but that's an empirical question. And I show so many examples where actually collecting more and putting more inputs into the system is the way to correct past injustices, ongoing inequities. So, for example, with health data, getting more input of race and gender is actually going to correct these very skewed data sets that we've had for, for many years where clinical trials were done much more on white men. And so kind of understanding women's health better, people of color. The example that you gave with Compass, that's a very controversial example. And you see these kind of failures, I think, in the policy time and again, where you see an algorithm that is designed to make decisions about sentencing or bail or just all sorts of judicative decisions. 
And A, what you said before of having that double standard, if there is disparity in the different demographics, that seems to immediately imply to some people that we should throw away the algorithm. And rather than asking the comparative question, is it doing better than with the judge that we know our justice system is very flawed? If there's somewhere to try to correct with, you know, having more rationality and more accuracy is definitely that we need to do that there, that kind of work. And second, there's some things that we shouldn't expect technology. We shouldn't kind of dump everything on technology to correct if there is a reality where, you know, because of poverty, because of crime-ridden communities, there are disparities in arrests. We should tackle that, but it doesn't mean that if we're using, like, we have a system in place and we get some disparate outcomes, it doesn't mean that it's discrimination. This is what we talked about before, like discrimination as we define in the law about taking equally situated people and making different decisions about them. One of the things that I think about a lot is just to kind of use technology to see all these differences and to start seeing what are the root causes, where did the discrimination start or where did the disparity start? One more example is that I think about equal pay a lot. And today is actually International Women's Day. So, um, you know, that's the moment that we think, how do we still have 80% to the dollar? It's pretty stagnant. So I have an article I wrote in 2020, and I haven't looked at the numbers since then, but I showed that it was stagnating. Yes, we corrected. It used to be 60 cents to the dollar. And then now we're at 80. But if you just look at the past decade, it's quite constant. If we don't do anything, the statistics are showing that it will take like a century to, <laughs> to actually correct or close the gap. But the question is, how do we use more data to close it? And one thing that has been a policy change here in California and, and other places is the do not ask suggestion or actually prohibition that employers don't ask your past salary when they're hiring somebody so that they don't input that and replicate their or give the 10% raise on that past salary that is statistically going to be lower for women. It's an empirical question of whether that's effective or whether not giving that input is actually going to exacerbate and just kind of people are going to make assumptions that the woman has been paid less. Very similar to the question of ban the box of the checking whether you have a criminal background or trying to remove the racial disparity there. That was a policy that was passed in many states. And there's some empirical evidence that actually backfired because then there was just kind of an assumption that everybody had the, some if they were from a specific background. So we should look at these questions empirically to the bigger question of what do we put in? What do we leave out? It, it depends on the goals that we're trying to achieve and how the processing actually is going to affect. So all the time auditing is, <laughs> is definitely the rule of thumb. I want to circle back to your earliest book, which is Talent Wants to Be Free. This is an issue that's in the news quite a bit. And when people come to Silicon Valley from other parts of the world and they ask me, what is the secret sauce, right? I'm expected to come up with some pithy answers. But one of the things that I point to is this ban on non-competes that we have here in California, which really is unmatched by any other jurisdiction in the US, right? There's really nowhere else that is so adamantly opposed to this. And There's a proposal by the FTC to kind of extend that to the rest of of the country. You take on the kind of standard law and economics view, which is that companies need some incentive to invest in their employees' capabilities, and they need to be able to get some assurance that the employee is going to stick around long enough that they can recover that investment. And you point out that this is probably not true, and that instead this is really an exercise in overreach by the employers. But I guess the only way that you could explain why so many employees sign on to this would have to be sort of a behavioral one, right? That they simply don't understand the consequences or is it just a lack of bargaining power? So first of all, why do we see these things? Why don't employees push back? And then secondly, why are they so harmful to the diffusion of expertise, innovation, and so forth? And could you convince a company to voluntarily say, abandon this unilaterally in a regime where it wasn't prohibited? No, these are all questions that I've thought about a lot. And I think it's a boilerplate contract that most people 
receive these days. There is some behavioral like misinformation, optimism. When you join a company, you're not thinking about the next steps. You're not thinking about when things go bad. You might think that it won't be enforceable. You might know that it's not. But most of the time, it's, it really is more about bargaining power that, that these contracts are presented oftentimes after somebody accepted the job. We call it cube wrap, just like click wrap with consumer contracts. It's when you just arrive to your cubicle and you sign something like that's part of the handbook and all of these contracts. And by the way, I in Talent Wants to be Free and Subsequent Work, I talk about non-competes, but not just about non-competes. What you described in California, we don't allow contracts that in the business code, it doesn't say the word non-competes. It says contracts that restrain trade and the pursuit of one's profession. And so there are lots of other contracts or clauses that are de facto non-competes, overly broad NDAs. That's actually the subject and part of my second book of You Don't Own Me, where even in California, if you have these really broad innovation assignment agreements and NDAs that say that everything that you ever saw and learned in the company is proprietary and you can't move to the next job and use those kind of skills, then your talent becomes off the market, useless to anybody else. There's non-solicitation clauses so that you can't solicit former coworkers or customers. So all of those are kind of operate together as boilerplate to suppress mobility. And to your question of whether we can convince businesses. So I've been working for a decade to convince businesses. And I think that there is very much the business case for banning non-competes. And you just described it with Silicon Valley, where the industry moved much more rapidly together. There were like whole teams that kind of were poached, but these are agglomeration economies that like are super innovative. There's the network of inventors densifies. This is all very much supported in the empirical studies that, you know, we each become much more inventive and creative when we are in a place where there's a lot of innovation happening. It's kind of the Medici effect or, you know, being in uh, dense, talented networks. I think employers should understand and California employers have understood that incentivizing employees to stay using the carrots of like performance, bonuses, stock options is much more kind of intrinsically effective for performance than using the sticks of confinement of telling them you can't leave because I'm going to sue you. So then you get an unhappy employee. That's actually some experimental research that my co-author on Amir, who you know, who's also my husband, he and I did some experiments there of showing that employees are, when they think about their careers and their human capital as their own, they're actually going to, even from time zero, going to invest much more doing the job well. And I see this all the time because I'm here in Biotech Beach in Southern California. I see attorneys telling their biotech companies like, you know, you can tell the employees from Michigan who have signed non-competes to come here and they'll be free. They won't sign a non-compete. You'll just like make sure that you're the sexiest, best employer on the block and they'll stay when they're happy and they'll be great. But then they'll also know that they have like the market will see them and the, they will have external offers. I mean, to academics, it's probably crazy to think about non-competes, right? Again, we have tenure, but we have a lateral market. And part of our performance is to be all the time in that market. So this is a lot. But like one of the points that I want to make is that the positive effects of banning non-competes, which is really important to me right now, because like after a decade that I've been arguing that we should nationally ban it right now, we're in the period of notice and comment at the FTC for a national ban, there's multiple effects. Like I can describe like 10 different effects that are all kind of pointing to why that's the optimal equilibrium that everybody forgoes this like really strong stick of anti-competitiveness and uses other ways. I mean, we still will have trade secrecy litigation. We still have other ways to retain people, but we will have a competitive market. Well, I think it was in the Stanford Law Review piece that you co-authored where you claim that there won't be a reduction in human capital investment if you abolish these things. And is that part of that is because the employees themselves now have more of an incentive to invest in human capital accumulation, but also, I mean, the employers, they can differentiate themselves, I would think, by recruiting people with the 
added benefit that you'll leave your job better than when you showed up for your job. And so I think we see that in Silicon Valley all the time where when an employee leaves to do a startup, they throw a party for the employee rather than grab the box of <laughs> contents from their desk and escort them out with security, right? They have some balloons and they have some champagne and people advertise that they're ex-Google the same way they advertise that they're, say, ex-Stanford. So, I mean, do companies fully appreciate the degree to which this is a recruiting tool? And secondly, how much of the burden now is put on the employee with respect to investing in themselves, right? I remember the days when McKinsey would send their people to MBA programs and pay for the MBA programs, and now people more or less have to pay for them themselves. Yeah, the best companies do appreciate that investment in skills and and experience and network is all something that the best employees think about when they join a job. Even like my daughter is a junior at Stanford right now, and she was looking at different summer jobs, and she's going to be in the financial team at eBay this summer. And you can see this even like she had a bunch of offers, and eBay offered the summer internship. It wasn't about like just the bottom line salary. It was an internship that had actual learning to it, themes, a cohort that become a network and a mentorship opportunity. So yes, I think the better companies realize that. And they also realize exactly what you say that they can think about their ex-employees as increasing their market footprint as alumni. There's also much more boomerang hiring today where like if employees realize that the grass is not greener at another place, I think there's lots of irrationalities that some companies have where like, oh, they left us, they're never coming back. But also in academia, you see this sometimes, like somebody moves and if they're not happy, we'll take them back. If we, we already know them much better than we know anybody else, this is like an actual known person. We know them, you know, how they'll perform. So I think it's a really good idea to let them go and let them come back. But in terms of what you asked of how much investment there's going to be, if we're reducing, there's certainly going to be less, I think, less and less of that like long-term educational support for employees because the reality is that there's much more job hopping as there should be. Like the days of GE University are kind of over, right? Remember? I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, Crotonville. Right. You don't start that company, town company, you know, job and retire with a gold watch. It's just not the pattern. It's actually not what the market is offering, but it's also not what the generation that's going on the market now is interested in. A lot want to start maybe at a company, but think about becoming independent, becoming entrepreneurs later on. So that's, I think actually that's a moment, again, to rethink some of our priors, what as a public we give people. So I'm a big supporter of universal education that is affordable or free in higher education, thinking about reskilling. It, it connects actually to our discussions before about automation and the equality machine. We're also at a moment where there's going to be acceleration. There's always been a lot of changes and where the jobs are with any industrial revolution and technological advancement. But right now, for sure, there's going to be like a leap in the speed in which some jobs are going to be annihilated and others are going to be available. So I think there's a very much a, a role for public investment there for digital literacy and reskilling that will not necessarily be provided by the market. Now, I wouldn't want to have a conversation with you without mentioning your book, You Don't Own Me, which I found to be, it's a th one of these thrillers. <laughs> it's just, when you go down that rabbit hole, it's just incredible to see the extent to which the employer of the kind of main character of the book, Mattel, believed that they own the thoughts and feelings and ideas of this employee who went on to found the Bratz doll. Is this story so interesting because it's atypical? I mean, the contrast that the, between the way the universities, particularly universities like Stanford, treat their employees. I think about Sergey and Larry and how they went off to form Google. And Stanford was like, oh, you know, have fun, go do it. And they didn't really make any efforts to own the, the many billions of dollars that were generated. They were effectively created within the labs at Stanford University. Obviously, it's a university. But, I mean, the Mattel story is just so crazy. And the poor founder, I mean, he just wound up getting 
squeezed and destroyed by this litigation. Well, thank you, first of all, for calling it a thriller. Actually, the Financial Times called it a page turner. So it and, and they said that usually these topics seem dry. I don't I never think that intellectual property and market ethics and litigation battles are dry. But they said that like here it becomes they're very colorful personalities and characters and twists and turns and what happened. And it's all about dolls. It's like adult men executives, for the most part, thinking about Barbie and brats and like thinking that they're somehow real. It's quite funny. So in that sense, maybe it's a specific story, but I think about it as a very universal story. It's unique, but also universal. It happens in every industry, these battles over market dominance and like the Goliath trying to litigate to death and terrify and threaten the newcomers, the new entries, the inventors. I actually wanted to tell this story because I think we have a lot of these stories. I mean, you said, yeah, universities let their people go. Sometimes, actually, they've become more militant these days, like even universities with like tech transfer offices, and they've been suing their own faculty for like doing backdoor tech transfer and things like that. So it's not that simple even there. But certainly in the industry and like the for-profit industry, I felt like those stories were told, actually, like the Zuckerberg story, like the Facebook social network. That's it's a very similar feel. Right. It's also this crazy story of a few students sitting at Harvard and thinking about a social network. And then like the Winklevosses go after Zuckerberg because he starts Facebook. And it's also a moment of like this. You don't own me. I think he has this moment in the movie that's, you know, fictionalized by Sorkin where he sits there and he says, if you had invented Facebook, you would have had Facebook. Like it's all the invention that comes from or like the entrepreneurial spark that comes after you have like a small idea, seed of idea, idea. That's really what makes companies what they are, products what they are. And one company should not own the entire brain of and kind of creative capacities of others. So it's kind of yes and no. And I think that the Mattel dominance is happening in every industry. There is, we talked before about like how markets are becoming more and more concentrated. So certainly with big tech, with big platforms, we have like a big five with entertainment in Hollywood. We see more and more concentration rather than more and more competition. And there's always going to be an impulse. This is, we talked about Becker but there are many like other Nobel laureates like Kenneth Arrow who have kind of shown us very basically and intuitively that the more concentrated a market, the less incentive there is to innovate and to cannibalize your own products. And I show this in the internal documents that I sift through with Mattel, where they actually use the word cannibalize. Like Barbie is their golden girl. She's dominated the market for six decades, why would they have any other version of her if there's no competition? Yeah. So (laughs) I think that's kind of the dynamic that happens in a lot of industries. Well, I used the story in one of my classes as sort of a how-to, a warning. And I tell my students that if they are going to come up with some new idea, work on a startup, that they have to be very careful (laughs) to take notes about where they did this stuff, right? So if you're doodling at work, you might be in trouble. So you better just hold that thought, wait until you get home, doodle when you get home, doodle on the weekends. And when you have companies like Facebook and Google, which encourage their employees to spend day and night at their offices, I mean, well, not as much anymore, but it used to be they'd have the back rubs and the laundry and the late night snack bar. And I mean, when you're there 24 seven, it's pretty hard to make the claim that you dreamed up your startup outside of business hours. So this kind of argument, I describe this in You Don't Own Me, that this idea of weekends and nights as getting you out of the contract, not clear that under our current laws, that is even a valid argument. Like the Googles, where they give you 20% to just do whatever, wherever to explore new ventures, the contract is very clear that that too is covered in terms of the innovation assignment. Like that's all assigned then to the company. And those contracts are in, for the most part enforceable, unlike non-competes, which are not enforceable in California. California enforces these kinds of, I think, over-encompassing assignments of like anything that you ever 
invent that in some ways related. And especially with a company like Google, everything is related to the business of Google because Google does everything. There's no space where Google is not interested, right? What would be that kind of in outside the industry or non-competitive idea that you can come up with that is not a competitor to Google? There is, I mean, it's funny, at the show Silicon Valley on HBO, there is that moment where it's like like the fictionalized Google, which is Hooli, you know, is going after the small startup. And there is kind of this perception that as long as you did it on your own computer, like there's a moment where they find out that he did work on the company computer. And that's like, okay, that's the end of the story. They own that invention. I'm not sure that under our current laws, even like doing things on your own time with your own materials is enough when a company can claim that the contract encompasses everything. So it's something that's important to me. I would like our laws to be better on this, but there is that kind of impulse and interest of the bigger companies to try to own everything. Well, the show Silicon Valley does make another appearance in your book where you reference the Playboy centerfold that was at the heart of the image. <laughs> That's in the equality machine, you're right. Yeah, image recognition systems, which I didn't know that story. But to tie the you don't own me back to equality machine in a strange way, Barbie was, I guess, originally at some point a sex doll of some kind. And you have a whole section on robots and in particular on kind of the role that robots might play in intimacy and you talk about pornography and so forth. And I found that chapter to be particularly, I guess, interesting and perhaps a bit disturbing. And once again, you have a more optimistic take than many people would have. I think a lot of people would argue that this is disconcerting, the extent to which interactions with robots might replace interactions with real live human beings. I mean, what's lost there? I mean, apart from some of the more disconcerting ways in which people will abuse their dolls and uh, abuse their robots. And I think you wonder whether this is a compliment or a substitute to abusing other human beings. Why should we not be concerned about the invasion of technology into our intimate spaces? So first of all, Gregory, I commend you for asking about the two chapters that are all about sex in the book. I have been interviewed now that I'm on a book tour with the Equality Machine by a lot of different people. And those two chapters don't get as much questions. I don't know. People are kind of hesitant to, I was just joking, Tel Aviv University did a big book event where there was like a whole panel of commentators from academia, from the engineering department, from different departments, and then also from Google and other places. And my parents were in the audience. And then I came up and kind of thanked everybody at the end. And they said, well, I'm so happy my parents were here, but maybe because they were here, nobody asked, nobody said anything about sex, even though, you know, our intimate lives are changing a lot with robots and with digital technology, with sex tech. And we should talk about this and we should ask exactly the questions that you're asking about, like, what are the risks for what we think of as most human, like our connections, our relationships, our love lives, our dating, and what are the opportunities? So that's how I think about everything. You know, in every chapter, I think about risks and opportunities. I don't deny that there are things that are very concerning, like I describe how so much of the market of sex robots is so racialized and so stereotyped on like different cultures. And, and it's very disturbing to me. I think it's a similar dynamic that we've seen in the past about debates about pornography and also about sex work, where it's a between feminism debate often. And I think that I am more on the side of wanting to take agency over what is happening. And I don't want to be like a bedfellow of a conservative voice of saying, let's just ban pornography. And then like some feminists are, yeah, they're with that kind of conservative strand coming from maybe the left, but saying, yes, pornography is objectifying women. And there's another strand that says, well, we can kind of reclaim, reown, say that, you know, we all can enjoy fantasy and reimagination and enhancement of our our sex lives, of our bodies, of our physical sensations. And so that is kind of where I come from of kind of reimagining. And I tell these stories of like part of my research was to see like a lot of stories, kind of this pattern of women being very skeptical about 
a sex robot experience and then going and kind of actually seeing that there are opportunities there. So that's one thing that I want us to be more open about. But also, I think that, you know, there's lots of evidence that lots of loneliness that is happening around the world and we should recognize that people come with different abilities, people who are like there's aging and the way that our communities are set up. We saw this during covid and it doesn't have to be, of course, just sex robots. It's like bringing into your home a robot that interacts with you. It can be even like a pet robot. Even like a Roomba. I think people find companionship in a Roomba, right? Even a Roomba. Yeah. But actually, this is a little known fact that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, actually approved, based on the research, a like a seal robot to be a like a medical device or a treatment for people in homes and elderly care or people that have dementia, Alzheimer's. And one of the things that you see in the research, and I actually show that same thing you see when you introduce robots in schools, is that unlike conventional wisdom or like the conversations that we're having is that if we introduce like technology, we introduce robot, we're going to be less interactive with each other. It's actually exactly the reverse, that you introduce this robot and if you design it correctly to be like a social robot, and that's a frontier, you get much more interaction between the people in the room, between the caretaker and the patient, between the different patients in the room. They become actually much more social with each other. So again, like I, I want to base my analysis on facts. And, and a lot of times I see like just a lot of things thrown out there about like how we're becoming less social and things like that, that are just not based in reality. Yeah. I mean, I think the one takeaway that I got from those chapters is that a lot more empirical work has to be done, right? I mean, we, I think we all have various frameworks and priors about how this is going to impact people and their view of sexuality and view of other people. But at the end of the day, we, we really don't know. And it might have impacts that go contrary to our priors. So that was the big takeaway that I got. Was Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, Again, it depends on like what we're trying to achieve, what are normative values, what do we care about? But also there's generational differences and there's cultural differences. So I traveled to Japan and to Korea and show that like they have in their histories and maybe some of the, like their religious. Do you call them Dutch wives? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, well, they're just much more comfortable with bringing in robots into their homes. So they're more trusting and that has to do with some of their post-war histories. And sometimes it's actually, there's like some perverse stuff that going on there where like it's, you become so innovative on that front because you actually, this is something that has been shown with Japanese culture. The robots seem like more of the in-group than like a foreign worker because it's a very homogenous culture. So there's lots of things that we need to think about and kind of a priori, it's all good, it's all bad. That's never, the, I think, the, the right way to think about these things. Well, sometimes I wish I had a robotic teaching assistant, um, but <laughs> I think that's a long way off. Orly, thank you so much for joining me. The most recent book, which we barely scratched the surface of, is called The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future. Of course, don't forget, you don't own me. Once again, thriller, page turner and somewhat disturbing. So check it out. And also, talent wants to be free. Let's chat again soon. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>